Hello and welcome to week two of uh, this reading group on capitalism and desire. Um, I'm hoping that, like, by the end of this, this is a it's a big commitment, ten weeks. But at the end of this, it's not just that you're going to have some new knowledge, which you will have, but what's probably going to happen is you're going to be able to think like Todd McGowan. Some of you have read him before, worked with him before, but if it's if you're new to this. At first, it can seem like a lot of stuff to remember, but but actually the same point is being made again and again. That's usually the way with books, even the, the best books. There's a lot of complex ideas, but it keeps honing in, keeps honing in on the same kind of basic kind of ideas. And um, if you persevere to the end of this book study, I uh, guarantee, no money back guarantee, <laughs> that you will... Um, you know, have a have a greater sense of the world and vision um, that's being painted here, and actually a very deep understanding of psychoanalysis. It's that's going to be happening behind your back. Well, I've just said it, but but uh, but it kind of like as you're reading this, uh, it comes up, of course, every now and again. But the whole thing is immersed in a certain way of understanding human desire. So. We'll get into the second week. Uh, I'm going to do the usual thing. I'm going to talk for a little bit. I'm going to talk about kind of the main themes in the chapter, and then we'll open it up and we'll take about 90 minutes. Uh, there's basically two points that are being made in this chapter, and uh, you could relate them to the, the term ontology. Uh, ontology means the nature of being, and what McGowan is arguing here is that our contemporary kind of modality of desire, the way we desire today, what we see within the current socio-economic world, um, rests on sand, right? We are trying to build a structure on sand and we need to build it on rock, uh, to use a nice biblical metaphor. And the sand is two things. And uh, before I kind of offer the critique of them, um, it's good for us just to hear them and, and probably feel how natural they sound to us, to all of us. Even if we disagree with them, these are going to sound incredibly natural. <laughs> um, and the first one is the idea that we are individuals who gradually are socialized into the world. So the first ontological claim that that, that the current socioeconomic system rests upon, according to Todd McGowan, is a notion that we enter the world as an individual and then we gradually have to find our way of interacting with people. It's almost like you're at a swimming pool and you're outside the swimming pool and then you kind of have to jump in with everybody else and you have to find your way around. So again, another analogy would be, well, and I think some people you know, literally believe this, but you, you know, you, when you're born, you are born, right? There's a you, right? You're born and you don't know how to navigate the world. So your parents help you learn how to socialize, how to engage with other people. But first and foremost, you are an individual and then in in secondarily, you are a social being, a social creature. So that's the first one. Um, oh, and I'll mention just one uh, major capitalist economist who kind of like shows this at work is Milton uh, Friedman. So Milton Friedman is kind of one of the, the most well-known uh, capitalist economists of the 20th century. And he was quite, he would be called a neoclassical economist. And he went to such an extreme that 
uh, he would make an argument, as quite an interesting argument, that, that we shouldn't have to pay for anything that we don't use. So for example, you're, I'm paying taxes for schools. I don't have kids, right? So like, why should I be paying for schools to not, not to do it? But if I did have kids, I would pay for schools. Um, if I didn't have a car, why would I pay for my, why would I pay tax for the roads? I don't use, I don't use a car. Um, now, of course, I might buy products from Amazon and they deliver on the roads, but then Amazon pays for that and they can put extra money on the product and then I can pay a little bit extra on the product. But what you see when you listen to Friedman or when you read Friedman is this tendency to go, we are privatized individuals that, and we pay for what we use and society runs that way. And so there's this movement of, of, of kind of privatized. Now, then Milton Friedman would say, however, it's your money, so you might want to give to charity. You might want to do all of this good social work. And he actually says people will do that. You've got money. You, you believe in something. You then freely uh, kind of offer some charitable donations. But the social comes later, right? It's like you pay for what you use. And then with your extra money, if you want, you can give that out to other social things. So that's the, that's the first kind of foundation that, that McGowan's talking about here, that the private individual who enters the world and then becomes a social being. And of course, Todd McGowan talks about how the more money we get or the more success we get, often the more privatized we become. It's almost like we want to get back out of the swimming pool because the toxicity of the other is too much. We're around people who think differently than us, who have different political, cultural, and religious views. And while we have to tolerate that if we're poor, right? You're living, I used to live in this tiny place called a village in a, like a, in a, in a, a little two by two. And the next door neighbor, you could hear their music. Uh, you could hear their arguments. You could hear like the, the, the kind of the toxicity of the other was, was making its impact in my life. And I had to occasionally call round to him and he was, a, he was a paramilitary guy, you know, and try to navigate his, uh, his lifestyle that was impinging on mine um, in a way that wouldn't get me killed. So that's, whereas whenever you get more money, you can get more distance from the other. You can just hang around with people who think like you, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's, that's a tendency I think we can see within life and we can maybe even identify in ourselves. I can identify it in myself as I become more secure to very late in life. Um, I, I become kind of like more distant from people. It's like this t natural tendency. So that's, we could call this the veil of illusions if we want to connect it to Buddhism. This is the psychoanalytic veil of illusions. The first illusion is that we are individuals first and social creatures second. The second sandy foundation is that is, is to do with motivation. It's to do with the idea that humans are self-motivated, self-interested, self-interested. And that selfish acts which we do have selfish acts, but they do come out of self-interest. Um, 
And of course, nothing wrong with this. Like if I hang around with some friends, I want them to self-interestedly like me. I would hate it if I found out my friends only hung out with me because they were being altruistic. They got nothing out of it. They just felt sorry for me. <laughs> um, so I, I want them to kind of selfishly want to hang out with me. But then, you know, people will be nice and will be kind, but they get some self-interest. And I, Ayn Rand is obviously the, the main example of this where you know, she shows that in a very extreme way that capitalism rests on the idea that we want our own best, the best for us and our families, etc., and that we act uh, behaviorally um, in relation to what we think will bring the most benefit to our lives, right? So utilitarians. And those seem like two very unproblematic, kind of simple views of human nature. Right. One is, what was the first one? Oh yeah, we're, we're individuals who then are socialized into the world. And second, we are self-interested creatures who look to uh, maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. So I almost want to pause for a second so that we feel the kind of the, the, um, the, uh, the what's the word? How convincing they sound, they can sound to us. Now, Todd McGowan is not going to, for example, give a kind of hippie response to selfishness and say, no, we can be selfless or anything like that. It's, it's a much more interesting argument. But the first, the first argument comes to our socialization. McGowan is arguing that we are first and foremost social creatures. We come to be a subject through our interaction with others. Now, I won't spend too long on this, um, but he's following Hegel here, and really a very important stream in, in continental philosophy and psychoanalysis, which is, it's not that you enter into the world as a subject, Peter Rollins, bam, I'm here, and then my parents have to help me navigate the world. It's that actually my parents are speaking into me, signifiers, they're speaking into me, speaking into me, and I kind of become the container of all those signifiers. I, and I start to become a self in relation to my encounter with the obstacle of the other, right? I, I encounter my, my brother and my sister, my family. And so my selfhood kind of constructs over time and remains quite constant. There's a certain age whenever I really become a strong sense of self. Now, if you suffer from psychosis, that sense of self is always under threat and can go away. But if it's solid enough, you right through to maybe in your, like whenever you're older, often you start to lose it again. Whenever someone hits into their 80s, often they start to lose a little bit of their selfhood and enter back into that more childlike kind of experience where the boundaries aren't so strong. But for most of our adult life, I have a sense of me. But the argument in psychoanalysis is that that sense of me comes later and is premised on the social aspect of life. That technically, if I could completely divorce myself from all others, including the others who are inside my head, I would be left not with me, I'd be left with nothing. Just like if I had my own language that nobody else spoke, if, if, if I created this language with, with completely my own, I wouldn't have a language. A language presupposes another. So right, now, um, okay, yeah, one more. So I wanna just 
look at what... Uh, oh, you yeah, know, I'll go on to the second one. I'll come back and say, what would a community look like that was built on these foundations? So that's, that's his first argument. The argument about self-interest you'll already have heard from chapter one. And it's the, it's the Freudian argument that there is a part of us that wants to feel that, that there is a part of us, and want is the wrong word, actually, but there's a part of us that is attached to obstacles, to loss. Now, it's not a conscious part of us at all. As soon as something's conscious, we are self-interested beings, right? Con but it's the unconscious dimension of us that revolves around a type of failure. And then that chapter one was very much about that. Uh, now, for McGowan, the question is, what would a system or a community look like that was built on that ontology? Not the ontology of the individual who becomes social or the ontology of self-interested people, but a community that was based on, on the understanding that we are social beings and our private life is a secondary phenomenon and we are motivated not just by our desires and our desire for pleasure, but also by failure and struggle. Um, and I'll, I'll use two, a couple of examples. The first example I want to use is group psychoanalysis. A good friend of mine, Chris Fry, he does group psychoanalysis with people. And one of the only rules they have as a group, now they do make some rules together, you know, whenever people are in, in the group, but the main rule is just you come every week and you come on time. Right? That's it. It's like no matter how awful it is, no matter how much you hate the person sitting across from you, the commitment, the contract is you come back. You might hate me, you might hate the person beside you, you might want to throw the towel in, but through all of that, you've got this commitment to coming back. And interestingly, a few other rules that are created by the group, one of them is you don't eat or drink. So you don't come in with a packet of crisps and like a, a, a Coke. And I'm guessing that rule came about because people were doing that and it was off-putting. And I think another one they said, which was um, you don't walk out early, you don't leave early, something like that. There's a couple of these extra rules. But my friend Chris said the purpose of the rules is not to enforce them. The purpose of the rules is to question when they're broken. So if someone breaks the rule, it's not therefore you turn around and go, you're eating, you're not supposed to eat. The, the group then asks, what, why are you eating? You know, what, what, you know, because of course that's saying something, right? If the rule is you don't eat and drink while someone's talking and I come in with, a, with my can of Coke and I'm drinking it, and, which actually my friend, a friend of mine did once in a group. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a round table discussion. It's actually my friend Jay Baker. He won't mind me saying up. It was this, this, this conversation, very intense conversation that was happening. And he went off and opened his can of Diet Coke and drank it. And I was sitting there going, that's, that's a message, you know, what's that, what is that, what is that message? Because it's saying something, you know, and, and so in group psychoanalysis, that becomes grist for the conversation. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that almost premises that we are first and foremost social creatures, i.e. you can't just walk away. Of course you can, right? But the idea is a community where you try to say to everybody, the purpose here is not to walk away when it gets tough. That's the only thing you don't do because we're all in this together and, and actually through the obstacle of the other, through the toxicity of the other, you'll actually find enjoyment and pleasure and, and, and you'll grow. 
And it's, it's in the privatization that you will not grow, that you'll not know how to engage with others, that you'll, you'll end up withering. Um, and another thing I want to say about this very quickly is it relates to the very last section of this book, which I think is the, most, the least clear section, but it's very, very good. So we may want to unpack it a bit, but he's talking about surveillance. Because uh, he makes the argument that um, surveillance threatens your private life by the fact that you are being watched, right? People are potentially looking at your emails, looking at what you browse, et cetera, et cetera. So surveillance by threatening your private life kind of solidifies the notion of a private life. The contrast is when you realize that your private life is public. And what I mean by that is even your most private fantasies are, are there because of a desire for the other. Sometimes you maybe fantasize about being rich or whatever. Well, who are you fantasizing for? Who is the other's desire that you want to get? Who, who is the other who you want to win over? Was it your mother or your father or your siblings, whatever? So there's a certain sense in which even our private lives are, are connected with the social life. And here's the trick. I think this is what, this is what Todd McGowan's arguing, is that when you really get that, like really feel it deep down, you're no longer embarrassed about even the most embarrassing things, right? It doesn't mean you're gonna talk about them, right? It doesn't mean you're gonna like be open about all the most embarrassing stuff in your life, but you're not overly embarrassed by them. And when you're not overly embarrassed by them, you can never be blackmailed. You can never be threatened with the making public of those terrible private things you've done. Because in a way you go, they're not private. That's connected to me as a social creature. So two examples, one is comedians. Say you go to the doctor and you have some very humiliating exam where they're putting probes places you prefer they didn't put probes and all of that, right? And you walk out of the doctor's office and you go, I'm never gonna talk about that, right? That's, I'm repressing that, right? That's, 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 that's not for anybody, that's my private life. But then maybe you go and you see a comedian and a comedian starts to make jokes about a similar thing that happened to them in, in the doctor's office, right? And you're laughing away and you realize other people are laughing. And you realize that, that that very private experience that was a bit humiliating isn't. It's actually loads of people have experienced that. And um, it's not, you don't have to be embarrassed about it. It doesn't mean you're gonna tell everybody, but the, the, the fact that the comedian takes what could be seen as a very private event, talks about it publicly, robs it all its power, the, the power of the private. Uh, this also happened to a British politician uh, about 10 years ago in the UK when the paper, the tabloid The Sun, exposed this politician because he, he had sex workers uh, and they were, uh, he was employing sex workers and they were kind of acting out this sadomasochistic thing and the, the, the Sun, you know, exposed him and he took them to court and he took them to court and he won and in court it was very interesting. He just wasn't ashamed. He said, listen, he says, it's like, I don't want pictures of me being on the toilet out there on the world, right? I don't want that, of course. But he says, but I'm not embarrassed about this. Nothing, I didn't do anything illegal. You know, I was doing, this is, this is something that lots of people do. And, and what was amazing was he, he didn't allow himself to be shamed because deep down, he wasn't ashamed. And, and as I said, he still said, like, I prefer this stuff wasn't made public. But he says, but no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be embarrassed about this. So by not, when you've got to that place within yourself, 
you're no longer able to be shamed by others. So that's a kind of example of that. Um, the opposite is a lot of churches, you'll notice um, a lot of social groups with churches as an example, is we tend to not want the other in the room. So churches will either explicitly or implicitly tend towards sameness. They, people who think the same politically, culturally and religiously. So much so that the role of the minister is to say the right things at the beginning. Uh, you know, he tells you or she tells you, mostly he, that what to think. And, um, and then you think as well the same thing, right? Um, or, so ultimately, it's, it's like taking psychedelics, right? It's you, the experience of the toxicity of the other disappears, right? So everyone, we're all one, we're all together. So you kind of like are able to kind of get rid of the, uh, the, the other as other. Um, and that's lovely, we all love that, right? But actually, a much more interesting and enriching type of community would be one in which real difference exists and in which we actually enjoy the difference. We're not scared by it. It doesn't mean we always like it. And sometimes the difference is so much that we do have to leave. But it's not the difference as such. A community of where there's, there's a dynamic kind of obstacle of the other becomes something productive. So within pyrotheology, for example, this is the rule of the decentering practices. With a vision that communities tend towards sameness, you have to have rituals that reintegrate difference. So the evangelism project where you go to visit other communities to be evangelized by them, atheism for Lent, the Omega course, the Last Supper, all of these are attempts to integrate um, discord into the collective. And then the second is how to integrate failure. If failure and sacrifice and loss and obstacle are a part of our being, then we need socioeconomic systems and communities that are able to make space for that type of failure um, and to integrate it so that it becomes not something painful that we have to overcome, but rather something that we can directly enjoy. And that's obviously one of the other roles of both psychoanalysis and pyrotheology. So, um, oh, and that's what you see a lot of, again, communities avoiding. They want to get, they want to overcome the loss. They have a fantasy that we can get over the obstacle. And just to boil this all down and connect it with chapter one, these two ontologies that are faulty, the ontologies of sand, which is we are individuals who become socialized and we're self-interested. Um, they both rely on the overcoming of an obstacle. They're the obstacle of the other, the toxic other, who has political views and ideas that we can't stand to be around. And the, let's call it the toxicity of the, um, the obstacle to what will make us happy, to the object that we desire. So both of those ontologies are based on the overcoming of an obstacle, whether it's obstacles that stop us getting what we want or obstacles of others who, um, who threaten to disturb our peace. And then the, 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 the alternatives to those, which is we are social beings first, and the private life is premised on that, and that uh, there's a part of us that, that seeks failure, <laughs> um, is, uh, uh, is an ontology that, that grasps obstacle. They're both onto, that, those are both focused around the idea that obstacle and struggle and sacrifice are not only necessary, they're not necessary evils, they're not something we have to tolerate, they're actually the place of 
of satisfaction. They're the place of enjoyment. And if we can just shift our vision in a slight way, we can directly enjoy the obstacles itself. And one final example from my own life is when I started public speaking, I hated it, absolutely hated it. And the only way I got over it was when I shifted my uh, perspective towards the obstacle, the, the fear, the sweating, the kind of anxiety of being in front of a group. And I was like, oh, I feel alive. Oh my goodness, actually, I've never felt so alive as when I have to walk out in front of a pile of people and, and waffle for a while. I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and it was like that, that very thing that I thought I had to overcome, I was able to directly embrace. And I think actually that's, that's what any public speaker needs to embrace to be a good public speaker. If you lose any fear at all, you'll probably lose your edge. Okay, there we go. I've talked for 20 minutes, so let's open it up. Um, first of all, any questions about what I've said, and then we'll go into the book itself, and uh, we'll, we'll pick it apart. So yeah, any questions on what I've just shared?